Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the podcast today is Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, to discuss some of the macro themes he's watching out for and where investors might find opportunities in today's market environment. Urian says that the lengthy period of low interest rates we've lived through has decreased the cost of capital, resulting in an increase of the present value of future cash flows and creating a mini bubble across asset classes. He explains to host Pamela Ritchie that investors can throw market playbooks out the window with the release of second quarter earnings next week, which are on track to decline by about 3%. On the earnings side, Urian says the market is seeing a soft landing, but it's difficult to know the degree to which liquidity will impact that outcome. As per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on July 5th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Urian. Great to see you. How are you? I'm well, Pamela. Nice to see you. Happy 4th of July for yesterday. Thank you. Same to you. A few days yeah. earlier. But That's yeah. right. Same weekend. We, we, get it, we pack it all yeah. in here. We go with lots of fireworks. Yes. <laughs> so let's begin. Urian, you often talk to this audience, to other audiences, about sort of the three pillars, ultimately, of, of how the market, what the market moves on, what holds up the market, essentially. Which do you think is sort of, how do you rank them at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and maybe just to, to tee up that question, we can pull up slide one. And that slide he's referring to is the S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index tweeted on July 10th. Which uh, shows that the market is very much at a, at a crossroads. You know, we're, we're, we tend to think of uh, the S&P 500 in its original form, which is a cap-weighted index. And of course, if a few very large companies drive the market, you're going to see that reflected in those index levels. And of course, that's exactly what's happened this year. S&P is up about 16%, but the lion's share of those gains were uh, have come from just you know seven or so mega cap growers, you know, all wrapped in kind of this AI theme. Uh, but if you look under the hood and you just take that same S&P index and you equal weight it, uh, you get this chart here. So this is SPW instead of SPX. And it shows that the market, you know, I mean, that's, a, I think, a pretty good looking chart. It shows, yeah, at least yeah. from, you know, putting on my technical hat, that looks like a potential base pattern. Um, so you have, you know, a very long trading range. I mean, this market has been in limbo, if you will, for a year and a half now, right? So the peak was early January 2022. Uh, the low has been so far, but likely will be October of last year. And then the market has recovered, which you can see. But if you really count from 
that original momentum low in June of last year, market's not gone really very far in a year. But you look at that pattern, and you know the bears will say that is a bear market rally or a bull trap, as as they call it, and the market's going to have another leg down. And indeed, that has been kind of the consensus, right? I mean, last year we had the valuation reset, right? The Fed raised the cost of capital on everything, and we know that when you value an asset, whether it's a business or real estate or a bond or a stock, um, the valuation is really the present value of future cash flows. Um, and so during the COVID period, during the pandemic, uh, you know, the Fed, I don't want to blame it all on the Fed, but we got basically a mini bubble uh, across asset classes, whether it's crypto or meme stocks or bonds or equities. Uh, rates went very low and they stayed there for too long, I think, and, and we can all agree on in retrospect. And that when you lower that cost of capital on, on these assets, uh, it raises the present value of future cash flows. And so um, valuations went to unsustainable level, right? So if, if you look at the 10-year Treasury yield, um, it, it went down to a half a percent. If you turn that around, uh, that's a PE of 200, right? So you're paying 200 times the coupons that you're going to get. Those are nosebleed levels for bonds. And for equities, it was about 30 times earnings. And so last year came the valuation reset, rates went up, present value of cash flows went down. Bonds are now in the 20s in terms of looking at it as a PE. And the stock market all, went all the way down to a 15 multiple uh, last October. We're now at about 19. But a lot of people were kind of looking for that other shoe to drop, right? We know the, the recession signal from the yield curve. Um, and, and so I think there was the consensus was that, okay, maybe the low is in, but we still have to deal with this recession and uh, the earnings drop that that's going to create. And the market has gotten impatient, right? So the market is saying, well, you know, fine, but 18 months is a long time to not be on trend, right? Because the market generally goes up about 60, 70% of the time. So to your to your question, you know, if we think about what are the pillars that a bull market uh, will ride on, obviously earnings is one of them. Um, liquidity, interest rates, monetary policy, inflation is another very important one and certainly has been the driving, the driving force during this market cycle. And the third one is sentiment. And so um, I think, just to give the executive summary, and we can go into some some slides, but you know, sentiment is clearly a a positive. It's a tailwind for the market, just because the consensus has been kind of waiting for that shoe to drop. So uh, investors are clearly kind of short or underexposed to to risk assets. Uh, but the liquidity pillar is clearly a negative. I mean, the Fed is still raising rates. Other central banks are as well. And the Fed paused in June, but is going again in July. And at this point, the market is expecting the Fed to go to about five and a half percent. And the Fed is saying, you know, after that, we're not going to cut rates anytime soon until inflation gets back down further. Um, and then and then you have earnings as the third pillar. And I think earnings are going to be the tiebreaker here because the sentiment one is is a tailwind. The liquidity one is a headwind. And then earnings are going to kind of declare, you know, which way we're going to go. And of course, second quarter earnings season is right around the corner. That starts next week. Fascinating. So, I mean, I guess that declare uh, term that you use there is is interesting because, as you say, it has not been a broad move 
higher up uh, in the equity market, lots of stagnant uh, stories to, to write home about. I mean, does it? How much longer should this take? Is it next week earnings? I mean, is is this sort of the key to it all? We've got we've got other macro pieces to it, but yeah. is it down to second quarter earnings, and then we'll know? So in the in the coming week or two, we're gonna get a, a taste of earnings, and of course, Q1, which we've discussed in the past, uh, ended up being much better than expected. Right, the market had been looking for about an 8% drop, and we got basically um, uh, an unchanged level from a year earlier. Um, and so what we're seeing on the earnings front, and let me see if I have a, a good slide on this. Um, we go to slide 19. That's the earnings and economy slide Urian is referring to tweeted on July 6. We, we can see that earnings, you know, earnings have been declining, right? So in 2021, the growth rate was 50%. Those were the base effects from the reopening after the pandemic. Um, and then this year, earnings are on track to decline about 3%. And then next year, at least based on the consensus earnings estimates, uh, we're going to have 11% growth. Now, those estimates are often uh, too optimistic. That, that's, a, that's certainly something that we've seen uh, over history. But still, to go from 50% plus to 3% minus back to 11% plus, like if that's not a soft landing, I don't know what is, right? So the market clearly is seeing a soft landing on the earnings side. And then it's just a matter of how much of that is offset by the liquidity side. Um, and, and if we go actually, and, and actually let me pull up slide seven because that gives you a good sense. That slide is the market cycle tweeted on July 5th. And, and we've had, we had this conversation three years ago, right? Remember? After the pandemic bottom down 35% in five weeks, the market came roaring back and certainly policy had a lot to do with it. But during those months where the market came roaring back, even though, you know, people were dying and the economy was basically shut down and earnings were falling, like it really doesn't make any sense in real time. And at these points in the market cycle, it never makes sense because the market is always discounting the future. Uh, not always correctly, I might add, but but it is always looking ahead. So that's why market timing during these particular points in the market cycle or the business cycle is just so, so difficult. And, and this chart kind of illustrates that. So if you look at the blue line, that is the current expected course of earnings. So the market is, is, is clearly looking for a very soft landing followed by a resumption of earnings growth. And you can see the dotted blue line is pretty similar to what the current expectations are. Then you have the dotted gray line and the solid gray line. That is the actual S&P 500 total return measured off of a bear market bottom. So that would be October of last year if that ends up being the lasting bottom. But then look at the yellow line, right? So by definition, if price recovers before earnings, that means that the early phase of a bull market is entirely driven by valuation, by PE multiple expansion. And typically the amount of expansion during that phase is about 40, 50%. And that's what we saw in 2020, it's what we saw in 2009 after the financial crisis, and it's what we're seeing right now. And, and the reason I mention this is because earnings, of course, is that big pillar. And if earnings come through again in the second quarter, they don't have to rise, but they just have to fall less than is expected because 
when you go from bad to good, you need to get to less bad first, right? And the market always trades on the rate of change on the second derivative. So you need the earnings numbers to become less bad before they can become good. And that's what happened in Q1. So if Q2 is a continuation of Q1, I think that will be seen very favorably. So uh, just to finish that, that thread, during that early phase of a bull market, the PE multiple expands by about 40, 50%. The PE multiple in October at the low was 15. If you add 50% to 15, you get to 22. Uh, you take the earnings estimates for next year, for 2024, they're $240 a share. Again, we don't know if those numbers are correct. Those are just estimates. But you take 22 times 240, you get to like 5,300 on the S&P. The old, all-time high was 4,800. So, you know, the bullish case is relatively easy to make unless the Fed goes from 5% so like 7% or something, right? But but if we can just come back to the first slide, the slide one. And Urian is referring back to the S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index tweeted on July 10th. I just want to bring it back to that S&P 500 Equal Weighted Chart because this is a chart that, like I get, you know, I've been studying markets and charts for 40 years, and this is a chart to me that wants to declare itself. like. To me, this this is more likely a base than what we call a continuation pattern. So a continuation pattern is a holding pattern after a trend, and then the trend resumes after that. This looks like a base, and those horizontal lines are Fibonacci retracements, and the market, I think they kind of identify or define where this trading range has been. And I'll add one other thing, which is that if this is a bear market rally, it would be a really long holding pattern, right? I mean, this is almost a year of limbo. Um, and um, and bear market rallies tend to not retrace more than about two-thirds or 50% or 60% of the preceding decline. If it does retrace more, it's no longer a bear market rally, but a bull market. Like, his, like historically, you can make that delineation. And so we're at that point where we have retraced 62%, which is the Fibonacci number. We're at the top of that range. And so if we get kind of a breakout, which we haven't gotten so far, and maybe we won't, but if we get that, um, to me, there's going to be no alternative than to say this is a new bull market. So we're not there yet, but we're getting, we seem to be getting close. I was going to say, it sounds like we're getting uh, pretty close there. Uh if we can go back to how this um, unloved, lots of different words for it, uh, first part of the year, I think you said punished in your note, actually. The consensus was punished, I think was the way you put it. Um, it still doesn't really solve the idea that although these companies that have done well in the equity market are just massive companies, there still is that question of breadth. What what do you do with that in in, again, sort of trying to figure out where we go from here? Yes, uh, it's a great question. And, you know, the typical playbook, uh, and of course, the market has been anything but typical since the pandemic started, you know, three, three and a half years ago. Um, you can kind of throw a lot of the typical market cycle playbooks out the window because this has been such a weird cycle. You know, you have this pandemic, it, it launched uh, this policy response, the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II. And so, that has distorted a lot of things. And one of them is the leadership, right? Because what you 
what you normally see is you get an inverted yield curve, which we certainly have uh, today, and slide 13 shows that. It's the most inverted in, in decades, and it's been inverted for a long time now. And that's the yield curve tweeted on July 6. And so it's really hard to ignore that signal. And so the, the consensus, you know, rightfully thinks, okay, we have like a 71% odds of a recession. If you look at the bottom panel, that's the New York Fed's recession probability model. Says so the odds of being in a recession in the next year, 71%. You just certainly don't want to ignore that. And if you get a recession, very likely you get an earnings decline. And then economically sensitive stocks, and as well as interest rate sensitive stocks, because obviously usually the Fed is tightening policy, and that's what inverts the yield curve in the first place. Right. So in a typical market cycle, a typical bear market, you get bank stocks and consumer stocks and industrials um, and anything with like a weak balance sheet. So think about the, the meme stocks, non-profitable growth stocks. Those all get taken you know, to, to, to the woodshed, and a lot of them did, right? I mean, the bank stocks are weak, and certainly the meme stocks imploded you know, well over a year ago. Um, but then you produce that V-shaped bottom, and then the Fed pivots, and then you come out of it, and then the new leadership are those economically sensitive stocks like banks, consumer, industrial, as well as those smaller companies with weaker balance sheets. And so if this is a new bull market, we're not seeing that, right? We're seeing the mega calves lead, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So my my way of making, uh, of tying that together is that, you know, this is an unloved market, right? The the consensus rightfully is worried about that shoe dropping, uh, but at the same time, the market is moving. And I think investors are kind of sticking with what worked in the past. And and then you have this AI wrapper that kind of, you know, gets people excited. So my my, my, my hunch is that um, investors are, are Playing the, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Um, they don't want to be left behind in the market. They have FOMO, um, but they don't trust the earnings and the economically sensitive stocks. So they're just hiding in these mega cap growers uh, with this AI theme around them, and that's how they get it both ways. But that's just my that's just my hunch. That's oh, fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit about Canadians generally, and 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 perhaps everyone that you're speaking to here today. There's you're always watching the U.S. dollar, you're always sort of watching where the Canadian dollar ends up ultimately um, versus the dollar. Much discussion about sort of U.S. exceptionalism. Is that still the case? Do we still look that way? Do we look to the rest of the world? Brutal numbers out of China actually overnight. We can sort of talk about that in a second separately, but. I guess the question is just on the U.S. dollar. Do you see over the sort of year-long horizon uh, a continued sort of ticking lower? Um, I, I do think the dollar trade is uh, down. So for uh, so I'm, I, I think the dollar will weaken. I think one of the reasons it's been strong the last couple of years is because the Fed really took the lead in terms of global monetary policy. I mean, you know, inflation is worse in Europe than it is in the US. It's much worse in Europe, but the Fed has far outpaced the tightening uh, of basically other than maybe the Bank of Canada or the Bank of England, but certainly compared to the ECB and certainly the Bank of Japan, which is still totally on the other side of this, uh, as well as the People's Bank of China, the US has really led the way in terms of this tightening cycle. 
and that creates a policy divergence between the U.S. and the and at least parts of the rest of the world, um, and that led to a rising dollar as well as you had this funding crisis and yet COVID and usually at at times of stress in the system, uh, investors flock to the dollar. But now, the Fed is probably in the ninth inning of its tightening campaign. At least that's how I think of it. And you know the ECB has more wood to chop. We saw the news out of Canada recently. Um, so that divergence of policy, um, I think, is correcting itself. And at the same time, you have a pretty lopsided performance attribution. So when you look at the the leaderboard of the world, it's been the U.S. over the rest of the world, and and the dollar has been part of the story, but not not all of it. Um, and then it's been large cap growth, right? It's the Fang stocks, it's Apple and Google and those those companies. Um, and so this has been a large cap growth phenomenon. And you know we know that mean reversion eventually will set in, but timing it can be very hard. Um, but at some point you look at the top and it's large growth. You look at the bottom, it's commodities. Um, at some point you're going to see that that flip, and part of that story will be U.S. versus non-U.S. equities. So Europe, Japan emerging markets, as you mentioned, the news out of China has been weak. That that reopening trade really hasn't gotten a lot of traction. And maybe that shows that the policy um, initiatives that, you know, uh, that, that have been in place there for the last few years and the geopolitical tensions and all the debt they have over there, that maybe the limits of how much you can reflate an economy um, have finally been been reached over there. But you know, I still think like Europe and Japan have been stealth competitors this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not as good as large cap growth or S and P, but certainly competitive. And I think with the dollar likely going lower here, I mean, not I, I'm not one of these de-dollarization people that thinks you know the dollar's going down in a fiery crash or anything like that. Um, uh, but I do think there's more more downside than upside now that that policy divergence between the Fed and the rest of the world is coming to a close. Let's just take that back to the sort of commodity side of things and, and the quilt that you're looking at and at some point. Um, the commodity story uh, flared, obviously, due to the war last year and then, and then was solved to a large degree, um, ultimately. But it's interesting. I mean, I wonder how much of the China demand story is, in fact, going to be part of the commodity story going forward. I mean, that may speak to the timing one way or the other. But does it feel like there has been a fundamental shift in the commodity story? I mean, then there's a whole story about what you're buying it in. You're buying in commodities and dollars. That's sort of its own sideshow. But to the extent of sort of the commodity story and how it globally gets around and gets traded, has has something shifted there? Well, so the so in the old days uh, when China would reflate or stimulate it, its economy, uh, they would do so by by building stuff, right? And that would drive demand for raw materials up. So if you remember back financial crisis in two thousand eight. China was actually the catalyst to get us out of that economic doldrum because China did this massive stimulus project and they were like building airports and railroads and buildings and this and that. Um, and so that set up you know, a commodity kind of super cycle at the time. Uh, now we have the China reopening trade, right? But it's it, that economy has matured. There are fewer things to build and it's more about consumer spending on travel and leisure and, and goods and services. Um, and so I, I think um, 
the global economy is less um, less commodity centric now and more services, just like the U.S. and Canada have already been for for many years. China is following in that footstep, which makes sense because it's a maturing economic cycle. Population is aging. At some point, you've built everything that needs to be built. So, um, so the, the the weak commodity story, of course, you know, you had the big gains uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and then oil peaked maybe three months uh, later, and then the Europeans got very very lucky with a warm warm winter, um, and um, and it's been very hot in in Europe, uh, uh, the, 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 you know, over the summer so far, but. Um, so I, I'm a commodity bull over the long term. I think it will have more to do with supply scarcity than demand. But right now, the demand is winning and the economy is slowing and the, the China story is less robust than than was expected. And you know, uh, the good news is that that feeds into the inflation data uh, and the CPI has gone from nine percent to four percent. Um, and maybe heading back to two, who knows? Um, so it, so that at least is the glass half full side of the story. Um, fascinating. I wonder if we can go to uh, what some have called the the banking crisis earlier this year in the U.S. Some, some well, crisis is too strong a word, um, but certainly the impact of interest rates on some U.S. banks uh, and ultimately sure. sort of where that that took things. The, the deposit, the funding story of banks, and ultimately, you know, what depositors get in their savings accounts is uh, not really lined up with the overall interest rate uh, story broadly. What for banks going forward? Is there is there anything still to watch there? Yes. So if we go to back to slide thirteen, and Urian is referring back to the yield curve slide tweeted on July six. So of course, in early March, so already uh, four months ago, um, the bank tremors hit. I call it more of a tremor than a crisis. Yep. Um, and of course, we know we know the story. A few smaller or not so small banks, actually, but a few banks that had gotten a lot of deposit growth since the low inflation, uh, low interest rate era began, um, and then uh, invested those deposits basically into bonds at historically low interest rates. Then their deposit, deposits start to leave, bond, bond yields go up, therefore you get losses on the portfolio, and those banks became undercapitalized and had to either go, go under or be bailed out. Um, but those were a handful of stocks, and for the rest of the banking system, um, things still seem to be okay. I mean, deposits are still leaving uh, in search of higher rates, and one of the big stories is that the average bank deposit rate is still only about half a percent. And so one of the big questions in the markets is why is the economy so resilient, even though the yield curve is so lopsided, which is the orange line there? And to me, the answer is pretty simple. It's just the economy has become, become less interest rate sensitive. So that gray line on the top, all I've done there is I've taken the yield curve three months to 10 year, and I've replaced the three month T-bill with the average bank deposit rate, and again, the entire economy is not funded on deposits. But, uh, but you know, if if a J.P. Morgan or a large large money center bank uh, has its main funding at near zero, then how sensitive are they going to really be to what the Fed is doing with interest rates? And so, the same thing with with homeowners in the U.S. Right, most of them termed out their mortgages in 2020 and 21. They went from a variable rate mortgage to a fixed rate and locked in about a 3% mortgage at the same time. So a large piece of the economy 
uh, I think doesn't really care where rates are. And I think that's one of the reasons why the economy has been so resilient here, even though we've had this really lopsided yield curve. So it's one of the conundrums and, and it, it suggests that maybe what we think is a neutral policy, which I think is around three, three and a half percent, maybe that's all wrong. Maybe it's like 5% and maybe the Fed isn't restrictive at all yet and needs to go that much further. And that's why this liquidity pillar of the three, right? Earnings, sentiment, liquidity, uh, that that's the one I'm looking at as maybe potentially the biggest headwind. The sentiment's clearly favorable. Earnings seems to be pulling through, but the Fed and liquidity is the one uh, that could could be the fly in the ointment here. Okay. Gary and Timber, it's been fascinating to uh, have you take us through these incredible slides and, and getting your views on them. Uh, we're very grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.